beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Lord's Day 23, we consider the glorious truth that we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, justification, that is God declaring that we are in a right relationship with him. We have a new status, a legal status before the holy God. And this new status is a gift of God's grace. It's not something that we have earned in any way. And therefore, we are led to praise the God who's made salvation possible and who fills us with every blessing in Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to salvation, the only thing that we contribute is the sin that makes it necessary. That's it. Other than sin, we have nothing to add. We have nothing to contribute. We can't increase the work of our Savior, nor is anything else even necessary. Salvation is completely the work of Jesus Christ. And that's a message that many of us have heard time and time again in our life. But just because we've heard it so many times, that doesn't mean that a different way of thinking ever really disappears from our mind. It's part of our human nature to think that we need to contribute something to our salvation, something besides the sin that makes it necessary. After all, we got ourselves into this mess. We were the ones who fell. So shouldn't we be the ones to get ourselves out of the mess? And this is an issue that has plagued the church right from the beginning. Just to illustrate that point, it was very present in the church of Galatia, as we could tell from our scripture reading. Such a way of thinking was also present during the time of the Reformation, not only from the Roman church, but also from Anabaptists and Arminians alike. Those are just a few examples. There are more that we could add to that list. And that way of thinking remains alive today as well. Many so-called churches emphasize that for salvation, you need orthopraxis. And that means right practice. You need right way of life. You don't need orthodoxy, they say, which is you don't need the right belief system. Well, Lord's Day 24 is helpful for us because it puts everything in the right order. Through this confession of the church, we learn that good works do have a place in our relationship with the Holy God. But that's not because we emphasize orthopraxis or right way of life as a means to being right with God. Rather, it's because orthoprax orthodoxy, right doctrine, will lead to orthopraxis, right way of life. I proclaim to you the word of God under the following theme the place of good works in our relationship with God. And we'll first look at the judgment on our good works, secondly, the reward on our good works, and finally, the source of our good works. Now, question 62 of our Lord's Day immediately presents a very interesting perspective. It asks, but why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of it? In other words, what's the problem with our good works? 
there's a specific attitude that lies behind this question. What you really are hearing here is man becoming defensive about himself and what he has done or what he thinks he's capable of doing. It's an attitude that you see within our own hearts. It's an attitude you see throughout this whole world. Because when you talk to people, very few will right away claim to be sinful people. In their own mind, they're not so bad. They do their best to be good to others. They try to be good citizens. They try to help when the opportunity arises. And because of that, they can't understand, why does God have a problem with me? I don't have a problem with God. I try hard to do right. What's the issue? We're not such horrible people. And yes, that mindset quickly creeps into our own mind as well. Why can our good works not contribute something to our standing with God? We go to church twice every Sunday. We regularly do devotions at home. We read the right reform material. We contribute to good reformed causes. The list continues from there. When you add up all these things, plus the other things that we do that people aren't even aware of, we don't really look so bad in the end, do we? Then it looks like we might just have something to contribute. Maybe we are rightfully getting a bit defensive when it comes to our good works that we do. And yet our confession cuts us off right at the knees, right from the start. And it does so by forcing us to deal with a very harsh reality. Notice that in the question, question 62, we're talking about our good works. But then towards the end of answer 62, the catechism slightly changes the language for us. If we want to talk about our good works, fine. But then let's start with the best works. Because even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. And if that's the case for our best, the very best we have to offer, well, what does that say about everything classified as less than the best? If even our best works are imperfect and they are defiled with sin, well, then we don't need to talk about anything else. And how do we know that our best works are so bad? Well, it's because the standard for what's acceptable to God is also presented in answer 62. The righteousness that can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God. And brothers and sisters, notice how strongly the catechism is emphasizing this point. Only righteousness or right conduct that is absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with the law of God can stand before His judgment. Anything less than such absolute perfection or complete, or, or complete agreement, it fails to meet the standard that God requires. Everything else falls under the standard of God's judgment. And then the truth is, it doesn't matter how we evaluate our works. It doesn't matter what we think about our works. Because our standard, man's standard, it means nothing. Everything is evaluated 
by God's standard and God's requirement. And when we add everything up according to that standard, then even our best works in this life don't come close to meeting God's standard. Righteousness that is acceptable to God must be absolutely perfect and in complete agreement with His law. Our best works? Imperfect. Defiled with sin. Everything we have to contribute, it doesn't add a thing to our salvation because it doesn't meet God's standard. Everything we have to contribute, it can't stand under His judgment. So then the plain truth is that if we want to rely on our good works to even be a part of our salvation, even a small part of our salvation, we remain under the curse of God. That's what we read about in our scripture reading. Galatians 3 verse 10 states it very simply, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. There's also Galatians 2 verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. By works of the law, no one is in a right relationship with God. Relying on good works is a sure way to only one thing, and that's an eternity under God's curse. Our good works, our best works, they can't help us. It's a very humbling truth. It's one that we cannot work around, regardless of how hard we may try. And while it is natural for man to get defensive about his works, because he feels that there has to be something redeemable about them, when they're placed in the light of God's law, then the inadequacy of our works becomes clear. So at first, Lord's Day 24 comes across as being somewhat harsh. It leaves us feeling a little bit beaten down. But then the structure of answer 62 is important to take careful note of. For while the question is speaking about our good works and why they cannot contribute in any way, notice how the answer doesn't begin by judging our good works. The answer starts with God. The answer reveals to us what God requires in order for us to be saved. And brothers and sisters, that is something to be extremely thankful for. If the catechism had started this answer by laying out just how bad even our best works really are, then we would really be lost in the depths of despair. Because the reality is, if we start with ourselves and what we are capable or incapable of doing, we will never make it to God. That's a direction, that's a way we cannot discover for ourselves. 
So by starting with God, rather than starting with sinful man, the catechism is beautifully laying out for us the right way of thinking. It's saying, don't start with your good works. Start with what God requires. And God requires absolutely perfect righteousness and complete agreement with his law. Well, if even our best works are imperfect and defiled with sin, what does that force us to do? It forces us to look in a completely different direction. We're forced to look away from ourselves. And the attention is placed on one, and that is Jesus Christ. The attention is placed on the only one who has perfectly obeyed God's law and whose righteousness is ours through faith. Our good works can never serve our justification. Our good works can't contribute a thing to a, sta a right standing before the Lord. But there is one thing pleasing to God and that is the fullness of Jesus Christ, his son, and everything that Christ has accomplished for us. The words of Galatians 3, verse 10 that we read earlier also come to mind. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by works of the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. No one can be justified by works of the law, by doing good works, because in the end what they are presenting to God is imperfect. But through faith, we have the righteousness of our Savior credited to us. Righteousness that is pleasing and acceptable to God. Righteousness that makes us heir of eternal life. But then still, even though we hear this truth and we rejoice in this great truth, we rejoice in what Christ has done for us, still in the heart of each one of us, there's that closet Roman or that closet Arminian that wants to present something to God. We desperately want to believe that we have something to offer. We desperately want to believe that we are not that bad because the alternative is too painful to consider. But our confession once again directs us to the fact we have nothing to contribute. Brothers and sisters, think about the best thing you've done in this life. The absolute best. The one thing that you would want to present to God as a means of being righteous with Him. You get to choose one. It doesn't measure up. It doesn't add anything to your salvation. The Lord Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, even that one best work that you thought of is imperfect and is defiled with sin. Our relationship with the Lord comes through one thing, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. His righteousness alone is acceptable to God because it was never tainted by sin in any way. It was absolutely perfect. It was in complete agreement with the law of God. It's the righteousness of Christ that can stand before God's judgment. And then congregation, when you think about it, what a rich 
wonderful, amazing gift that God freely offers in his grace. He takes that burden off of our shoulders, that burden of always trying to work harder, always trying to do better so that we're right with God. And instead he says, don't worry about it. Just believe in Jesus Christ and the record is set straight. Through faith in Christ, you are righteous. And there's nothing else required. Question and answer 63 then present another unique perspective for us to consider. What's somewhat ironic is the fact that there is a biblical argument raised to try and refute this whole doctrine of justification by faith alone. You notice that at the end of the question, there's a footnote that directs our attention to two passages of Scripture. In the first place, there are the words of Christ in Matthew 5, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. There's also Hebrews 11. There it speaks about God rewarding those who seek him. So there is no doubt that in his word, God promises a reward. But that leads to other questions. What's the nature of this reward? What does it mean that God promises this reward both in this life and the next, which is what we find in the question itself? What exactly is the necessary standard that we must achieve to earn this reward? However, before we get too far, the Catechism sets our way of thinking straight as it concerns this reward from God. The answer provided to the question is a very simple one. It's one of the favorites of Catechism students. This reward is not earned. It is a gift of grace. And when you look at those passages that are cited by the question, it's important to read them in their context. There's no denying that these passages do speak about a reward from God. However, there's something that's being presupposed in both of those texts, and it's the fact that those whom God rewards are those who live by faith. That shifts the focus from earning a reward to receiving a reward. In Matthew 5, the Lord Jesus had just spoken those well-known beatitudes, the statements of blessing for life in the kingdom, but such ways are only understood by those who believe and those who walk by faith. Same thing is true when you look at Hebrews 11. That whole verse that's quoted there is not only about speaking about the promised reward from God, it's about the necessity of faith for knowing that God exists and drawing near to God. So to right away advance in our thinking to the reward, skipping everything else but focusing only on that reward, that skips a few steps. The reward that God has promised is not one that has to be earned by his people doing good works. If that was the case, we would have no hope of ever earning that reward. That reward would remain out of reach not even our best works we could earn it. Now, to understand how this reward is a gift of grace, as we confess in answer 63, 
we can first think about the nature of this reward. What exactly is this reward made of? Well, the Bible answers that question for us in a spectacular way. It's a way that actually challenges our normal way of thinking. Because when it comes to a reward, people tend to think of something that they can hold in their hands. It's something they can spend. It's something they can use to get themselves further ahead in this world. Or you get the health and wealth preachers who proclaim that God is a reward. He gives you good health in this life and he gives you more wealth than you know what to deal with. But that's not what God says about the reward he gives in his grace. You think about a passage like Colossians 3 verse 24. And then Paul writes about the inheritance that is the reward. The inheritance. So the fact that through faith we are heirs of eternal life, we have an inheritance. That is a gift of God. The reward of eternal life is not something that we have earned through our good works. No, it is something that God gives us through faith. Faith that clings to Christ alone for every part of our salvation. However, God has also promised a reward in this life. Again, a reward that he gives in his grace. So what should we be looking for? Well, if the reward for the life to come is the reward of faith, then why would the reward in this life be any different than that? So rather than thinking about a reward that we see with our physical eyes, we should be thinking about a reward that can be perceived and understood only through the eyes of faith. And then what do we have through true faith in Jesus Christ? The answer is we have the greatest reward possible. We have peace with God. A peace that dwells in our hearts. A peace that assures us that through Jesus Christ, we have the complete forgiveness of all our sins. We have a peace that reminds us that there is nothing to fear because if God is for us, then who can be against us? We have the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding and is rooted in the fact that through Christ, we are already now in a right relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, what more could you want than that? What more could you ask from of God than to know that through Christ, your present and your future are completely secure? While our conscience and our human nature urge us to continue asking, what more can I get? How much more can I get? The reality is through faith, you already have the greatest reward possible. And clearly it is a reward given by God in His grace. If the reward had to be earned, then we would never have the peace with God that we enjoy already now. If we had to earn that reward of having peace with God, we would go through this whole life without ever knowing, have I done enough? Have I come close to God's perfect standard? Our whole life 
It would be plagued with questions and doubts about the past, the present, and the future. These would be questions that would go unanswered for all of this life, and they would only receive an answer when it's too late to change anything. We would never be able to lie down with that blessed assurance of peace that we belong to the Lord. But because this reward is a gift of God's grace, and it's not something that we have to earn for ourselves, then we may go through life with the confidence of faith. The confidence of faith that reminds us our peace with God doesn't rest on us. It doesn't rest on what we do. We don't have to do more to earn some or more of God's favor. Through Christ, we are in a right relationship with our Father. That's what gives peace and contentment to us. Through Christ, we have certainty rather than uncertainty. Through Christ, we have assurance rather than restlessness. That indeed is a very great reward, completely given by God in His grace. Question 64, you find the main attack against the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Not only Rome, but many others also contest that this doctrine, it just makes everything way too easy. It makes people careless and wicked. If people don't have to earn anything for themselves, they learn to rely on handouts. They sit back and they wait for everything to just come to them. They say that justification by faith alone No, no. That makes for dead Christians. So how are we to respond to that accusation? After all, that's the exact logic that so many people often use against giving handouts in other areas of life as well. Giving handouts makes people reliant on the system to provide. Giving handouts takes away any initiative to get up and do something in order to help yourself. And sobering truth is that there are, in fact, Christians who think along the lines of question 64. They think it, and they put it into practice. They convince themselves that because Christ has done everything for my salvation, I can do what I want. If I sin, oh well, it's forgiven anyways. And then sin becomes something casual. It's nothing to make a big deal about. And why bother engaging in that difficult daily battle of crucifying the old nature if, anything is, if everything is good anyways? There are many so-called Christians who live with that line of thinking. If you go only by the evidence that we see around us, then it may seem that the accusation of question 64, maybe it does have some merit. However, brothers and sisters, it is not the teaching of justification by faith alone that leads to dead Christians who happily and lazily give in to every manner of sinful pleasure. It's not the teaching, it's the abuse of the teaching. 
It's when people abuse this teaching, then they think they have the license to engage in whatever sinful activity they choose. And that's what comes out plainly in the Catechism's answer to this accusation. Does this teaching make people careless and wicked? One word. No. The teaching of justification by faith does not make for dead Christians who are careless and wicked. It never has. It never will. And the Apostle Paul gave a similar response to a similar accusation. In Romans 6, verse 1 and 2, he writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Being united to Jesus Christ by true faith means that we have died to sin. It means that sin no longer reigns in us. Sin no longer has power over us. And on that basis, the Catechism can continue to answer this accusation with the words, it is impossible that those grafted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. It simply is not possible that those united to Christ by true faith will not produce fruits that show their thankfulness to the God of their salvation. It doesn't work. They've died to sin. They're ruled and they're governed by the Holy Spirit. The grace of God does not lead to a desire to live even further in sin. No, the grace of God leads to a complete transformation. It leads to the desire to show thankfulness. It is a desire that continues to grow and expand the more we taste God's grace, the more we understand everything that is ours through faith in our Savior. Through faith, brothers and sisters, we have died to sin. But the opposite is true as well. Through faith, we are raised up to a new life as well. A life that is radically different from what we previously experienced. A life that Paul describes in a most beautiful way in our scripture reading. In Galatians 2 verse 20 and following, we read this truth. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Justification by faith alone will lead to good works. Because it's no longer we who live, it's Christ who lives in us. United to him by true faith, we are grafted into him. His life is flowing through us. His life is energizing us. And with that being the reality, then it is most certainly impossible for those who are justified to be dead Christians because the life of their Savior is flowing through them. They are alive in Christ. And those fruits of thankfulness begin to show more and more because that is the only possible response to the grace that God shows in His Son. And therefore, we can honestly say that, yes, good works do function in our relationship with the Lord. But it only works when we keep them in the proper understanding. 
Good works don't come at the beginning. They can't pay for sin, nor will they ever be able to do so. Good works don't earn us a right relationship with the holy God. Nor do good works earn us the reward of peace with God in this life and the certainty of the life to come. If we had to rely on good works to earn anything, then we are the most to be pitied among all people because we would have no hope at all. Rather, we believe that our right relationship with God and the reward of our God, they come to us only through faith in Jesus Christ. But then it's because we are alive in Christ. Good works will follow. Good works must follow. Not as a payment, not as a substitute, but the result of God's grace and the life of Christ at work within us. Good works exist to show the power of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Believing the right doctrine will lead to the right practice. Orthodoxy will lead to orthopraxis. Justification by faith does not lead to dead Christians. It leads to Christians who are truly alive in every sense of that word. And it is all because Christ lives in us, nourishing us in the faith, showing us how we are to live in thankfulness all the days of our life for his amazing love shown in such wondrous and amazing ways. Amen.